the elders for allowing me the opportunity to bring to you the Word of God today. I pray that we make much of Jesus, as it said this morning. It's not a good idea when you're given such a privilege to mention that you're going to be breaking some rules, but here we are. Um, So actually, we have two texts today. Two. But they're both by the same dual author, Luke and the Holy Spirit, so maybe I can get away with it. Um, Let's go to Luke 24, the end of the book. Luke 24, verses 50 through 53. And then, holding your place, maybe if you have a physical Bible, a ribbon, or if you have an electronic Bible, maybe open up another tab, and go to Acts, the first chapter, verses 6 through 12. Luke 24, 50 through 53, and Acts 6, 1 through 12. I'll be reading the Luke passage first, and then going to, to Acts chapter 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple blessing God. Now go to Acts chapter 1. Starting in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when He had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up. And a cloud took Him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as He went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord once more in prayer. Father, I pray now that You would help us see Your glory in this text, the glory of Your Son, the glory of the Holy Spirit. And let it speak comfort and truth to our hearts. And let us see the text rightly, in the text rightly, the exaltation of the Son of God. We thank You for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the correct perspective can help us see things correctly that we would otherwise miss or misinterpret. You know, if, if you're familiar and you have children, children sometimes need help seeing events with the correct perspective. Amen? They have, they have a certain way of looking at things uh, with their uh, childlike minds and their reasoning. And sometimes they can be very perceptive. But sometimes they don't have all the information. Right? So, as it were, what parents need to do at times is to give them more information to help them see things correctly. And we, are, as adults, are really not all that different, are we? Sometimes we need help seeing texts, people, and events correctly if we are to have the whole perspective. 
For those who are not aware, uh, this past Thursday on the church calendar was what we call, what is called rather, Ascension Thursday, where 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, he physically departed from the earth and ascended into heaven. That's what we just read about. In both Luke's Gospel and its sequel, Acts, the good doctor provides two accounts of Jesus' departure and the effect it had on the disciples. And if we pay close attention to his accounts and have what I hope is at least some of the Lord's perspective on the ascension, Jesus' departure will have the same effect on us as well. It will help us see him a little bit more accurately, a little bit more correctly. And it will generate worship in our hearts and our lives, as we, as we will see. Today we will look at five effects. There are many, certainly. But five effects that the ascension can have on us. Now, if you're looking at your, at your notes there, you'll notice the first one. The first effect is the ascension focuses our priorities for Christ. The ascension focuses our priorities for, for Christ. And we gather this from the first half of Luke 24, uh, verse 50, and Acts 6, verses 1 through 8. We'll look at this again. So, as Luke, the first half of Luke 24, verse 50 says, And he led them out as far as Bethany. And then picking up in Acts chapter six, uh, chapter 1, rather, verses 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. One thing that we see here is that Jesus leads the disciples out. Did you catch that? In, in verse 50. right? He led them out as far as Bethany. The time had come for Jesus to return to the Father. The time for Him to do that had come. He had prepared His disciples for this eventuality for quite some time. In our, in our sermon series that Pastor Scott has gone through, we've gone through the Gospel of John. And this is repeated in the Gospel of John. Now, it is a little strange that John does actually does not mention the ascension, Perhaps Pastor Scott will cover, but it's certain at least Jesus' actual ascension, right, the actual event, but it is talked about in the text quite a bit. And it is repeatedly brought up. And Jesus prepared his apostles for this. And he gathers them now together and he leads them out to Bethany, which is a small town about two miles outside of Jerusalem, as John eleven eighteen says. Where Jesus and His apostles end up is important, as we will see in just a little while. Jesus is not only leading His disciples out of Jerusalem to Bethany, but He's also leading them to a specific place for a specific purpose. And just as it's pointed out, Jesus has been leading His apostles the entire time in His ministry. He's leading them for the last time. And there's a point that He wants to make. There's something He wants them to catch. So, we also see in this text here that Jesus answers one last question. That's in verses 6 and 7 of Acts 1. And the text says, So when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And then uh, We'll just stop there, verse 6 first. So when they arrive at their destination, the apostles have one last burning question they would like answered. 
Can you imagine, right? Disciples having a question. Go figure. Um, this is this is Jesus's most of Jesus's ministry answering their questions or a good portion of it. So, what's the question they want answered? Is the kingdom going to be restored to Israel now? Now, as it's pointed out in by Bible commentators, some Bible commentators, this question is is a uh, I think a natural one. I think it's a natural one, and as it's pointed out that. Jesus has been spending 40 days with them talking about the kingdom of God. He's been speaking to them about this. And biblical authors have noted that the kingdom is a theme of his earthly ministry and indeed of the Bible itself. Perhaps they wondered, now that Jesus has risen from the dead, the time has now come that Jesus is going to restore the kingdom to Israel. So maybe this is why they're asking the question. What's Jesus' answer? Verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. Jesus answered their question by saying it was not for them to know the times or the seasons, for the events that the Father has fixed by his own authority. This is not their role. The disciples are on a need-to-know basis, and they don't need to know. However, even though they're told that they cannot know times or seasons, the Lord just doesn't leave them there. Thanks be to God, He doesn't leave us in places like that. The Lord redirects their attention to the upcoming task at hand and the equipping power to help them accomplish it. This is verse 8. and This is where you would have a fill in here. Jesus redirects the disciples' focus. This is in Acts 1.8. Jesus redirects the disciples focus. And what's he say? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus redirects the apostles' attention back to his promise of the Holy Spirit after his departure that he's been talking to them about and the commission he has given them to be his witnesses. First, in the city to which they're to return, Jerusalem, then in all Judea and Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. Note what he points out first in the text. They, he, they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They first need the Spirit's power to accomplish this daunting task, this formidable commission. As a result, they will be his witnesses. Witnesses of his life, death, resurrection, and what they're about to see. His ascension. Not only in Jerusalem, but to the very corners of the earth, as it said. What Bible commentators have so helpfully observed in Paul's epistles rings true here as well. We are reminded of the gifts of grace that we have in Christ first. And then we are given instructions or commands on what we are to be doing for Christ. Right? God empowers us. He tells us what He has done for us. And then He then, after that, He tells us what we need to be doing. The disciples are to be empowered by God and by the Holy Spirit, and they will be His witnesses throughout the world. There are many good questions, brothers and sisters, we have regarding God's Word. And these are ones that we should not ignore. But instead, we should study diligently to find the answer. 
And there are also questions that we have that are good. However, there are questions that the Lord is simply not going to give us an answer to until we see Him or He fulfills it. And then we're like, oh, that's the answer. And sometimes we just don't need to know right now. However, in His great sanctifying love for us, He will redirect our focus back to the task at hand. To make disciples of all nations and to be His witnesses to the end of the earth. There are so many of Christ's lost sheep, part of His fold, that need to be brought home. Let's not forget the task at hand and the great empowerment He gave us to accomplish this task. The same Spirit which empowered our Lord and these apostles. So what else does the ascension show us? What's it clarify for us? Our second point. The ascension reminds us of our blessing in Christ. This is the second half. This is a little uneven. It's just a half of a verse. The second half of Luke 24, verse 50. And the text says this, And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Now we have a little bit of easier part of our outline today. You'll notice that there are three blanks in this second point. And they're all the same word, peace. So you can go fill them in. And you can zone out for a little bit. No, don't zone out. But peace, there we go. All three blanks here. Peace. Jesus' goal for His disciples is to leave peace with them. John 14.27 says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is said in the context of Him leaving to go to the Father and the coming of the Holy Spirit and in the midst of the disciples' hearts being troubled and afraid. And He informs His disciples don't to, not let, to let their heart be troubled or to be afraid because He's leaving His peace with them. And you'll notice in our second sub-point here, that in Jesus' post-resurrection blessings, what does He say to them consistently? Think of one instance where it doesn't in John, and we're going to get to that. But consistently, in John and in Luke, He says what? Peace to you. Do you notice that? In John 20, verses 19 and 21, He says, Peace be with you. In John 20, 26, and I love what Pastor Scott said about this, was that you know he thinks that Jesus did this for Thomas' sake. And I think that's so true. He appears with Thomas there. And what's he say in John 20, 26? Peace, with you. Peace be with you. And then Luke 24, 36, he says again, Peace to you. Jesus wants His disciples to get it. That what He's going to be leaving with them is His peace. He wants them to understand that they are in a relationship of peace with God. And He wants us to get it because our blessing in Christ is indeed peace. Have you ever noticed that in the epistles, in the greetings, a lot of them are very similar? And... It's noted, uh, people know, that the word grace is proclaimed to the believers in Paul's epistles. But notice how the term peace is used in the greeting in the New Testament epistles, even outside 
of Paul's epistles. Every one of the epistles of Paul that we know were written by him, and I say that because it depends on what you think about Hebrews, which we're not going to get into. But every one of them, every one of them has a blessing of grace and peace. Every single one. And you can look those up in your own time. Just look at the beginning of every letter of Paul and you'll see it. It's there. As he did with the apostles, Jesus gives us his peace. He's conquered sin and death. He will always be with us. And he sent us his spirit to empower us and to be his witnesses. We need not be afraid. And in the rest of his revelation, God makes this point again and again. That we have peace. That peace is with us. And not only in Paul's epistles, like I said, but in others as well. And even in the ending, in seven of Paul's epistles, there are either blessings of peace or mentions of God as the God of peace or the Lord of peace near the end of the letter. In all but four of the remaining New Testament books, all but four, and and the exceptions are Hebrews, James, 1 John, and 3 John, all before you have blessings of peace near the beginning of the book. First and second Peter begin and nearly end with blessings of peace. And while third John doesn't have a beginning of blessing of peace, it has one at the end. And there's a blessing of, of the God of peace in the book of Hebrews as well at the end. Even the book of Revelation in verse 4 says, Grace to you in peace from the one who is and was and who is to come. Although the text does not specifically state the blessing Jesus gave the apostle, it would seem likely that Jesus' blessing was the same one that he gave the apostles repeatedly when he greeted them after the resurrection. And one that contained the gift which he said he would leave with them when he departed. Peace to you. One of the things we can learn from the epistles that God wants us to know, and He wanted the apostles to know, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Romans 5.1 says. Who gave us His life, His death, His righteousness, His resurrection, and His ascension, so that we would know that our sins are forgiven. The righteousness that we need is provided. The eternal life that He has promised is secured, that we are promised is secured. And our glorification is assured. As painful as our trials may be, as demoralizing as our persecution may become, and as alone as we may feel, nothing can not only separate us from the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord, but nothing can also separate us from the peace which is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as great as the Lord's gift of peace is, And as monumental as the accomplishment is, we should also note another aspect of the ascension. We should see that third, the ascension displays the exaltation of Christ. That the ascension displays the exaltation of Christ. This is Luke 24.51 and Acts 1.9. So Luke 24.51 says, While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And when he had said, and now, Acts 1.9, When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. First thing, one thing we see is that Jesus publicly 
ascends to heaven. Publicly. We see this in the first half of verse 51 of Luke 24 and the first half of verse 9 of Luke 1. While He blessed them, He parted from them. And when He had said these things as they were looking on, after Jesus reminded the apostles of the upcoming empowerment commission, and while He was blessing them, He parted from them before their very eyes. Imagine that one for a moment. They looked on while Jesus ascended. The ascension did not occur in a back alley in Jerusalem, nor in the fields of a Galilean farmer, nor in the remotest part of the wilderness. Granted, the apostles were the only ones apparently present on the scene, but the ascension did not occur in secret. If anyone were to be happening walking by when Jesus ascended, they would have seen this occur as well and probably got the shock of their life, I'm sure. The Lord wanted this to be public. The Father nor the Son did not want the ascension to occur in a location where no one could witness the marvelous event. Uh, One commentator, Richard Longnecker, talks about how the theme of Acts is basically about the disciples being witnesses. And it's so true. They wanted this to be publicly witnessed. They wanted the apostles, the Father and the Son, wanted them to see this. So not only would their faith be upheld, John 14.29, and not only so they could be publicly witnesses to the event, but that the Son would be glorified in their presence. The Son wanted His apostles to see His exaltation by the Father. And that's our second point here. Jesus is carried up into heaven by God to be exalted. The second half of verse 51 of Luke 24. And we're going to venture into the Old Testament. Notice, and he was carried up into heaven. While the parting language is active, both texts describe Jesus' act of ascending to heaven as passive. In other words, someone is carrying Jesus to heaven. Who is lifting Jesus to heaven? Well, we know well, don't we? The Father is. Why? To exalt and glorify Him. One of the most incredible elements of the Word of God is that it reveals the future before it happens. God, who is outside of time yet working within it, foreordains all of history and actively directs it through His providence, that is, His working through various normal means, or through the supernatural acts such as miracles. As the London Baptist Confession of Faith in 1689 states, says this, God hath decreed in Himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever comes to pass. All things, brothers and sisters, means all things. Even down to the subatomic particles and statements that are made. Some of those statements are made by man and some are made by God Himself. Have you ever wondered what the Father must have said to His Son when He triumphantly ascended into heaven and all the heavenly hosts erupted in the praise 
when he first stepped foot into the realm of light. Have you ever wondered? We don't need to wonder. Because King David the prophet told us what he would say. I'm going to be reading as the Legacy Standard Bible says it in Psalm 110 verse 1. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Brothers and sisters, the Father said this to the Son. And we have it here so we could read it. The Father exalted the Son by sitting Him down at the right hand of His majesty, at the right hand of His power. And as it is said by Bible teachers, the right hand of His authority and privilege. He conquered sin and death and was seated in the place of authority. Jesus Himself said to one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, Revelation 3.21, The one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. The Father pulled the Son to heaven because He wanted to exalt Him and to have Him sit at His right hand. And Jesus, the Messianic King, is received by a cloud and heaven. This is the second half of verse 9. He was lifted up and a cloud took Him out of their sight. Now one commentator talks about this cloud being uh, the Shekinah glory, which in the Old Testament is a visible, manifested presence of God in a cloud. That, that may be true. I would opt a more physical cloud, but take it like you like it, as long as you're faithful to the text, of course. Um, but the Father lifts Jesus up in their presence. He lifts them in the air through the sky, and the apostles watch Him until Jesus enters a cloud, or a cloud moves in front of Him, or a cloud formed around Him. In any case, they watched as a cloud took him out of their sight. They could no longer see him, but this exalted king was seen somewhere else. He crossed the threshold into heaven, and heaven's son, heaven's king, was received and was home again. The angels no doubt sung his praises and bowed before their king as they were willingly put under his authority. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20-22 through 22 says this, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He has put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church. I love what theologian Graham Cole says, and he says this in, another, uh, in a book he has. Quote, I find great comfort in the fact that the living God is the object of ceaseless worship and praise when on earth the name of God in His Christ can be spoken ill of so often and by so many. End quote. This fact has a clarifying effect on our hearts our souls, our minds, our wills, our spiritual eyes. It helps us remember, brothers and sisters, that our Father is praised and our Savior and King is lauded by His heavenly servants. 
from one end of the third heaven to the other. We see our world rightly when we see the Father say to the Son, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. This is reality. That God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, He is the object of praise. He's the object of praise of those who do praise Him and should be the object of praise of those who do not. And Jesus is the risen, ascended, and conquering King. And all things are under His dominion. Those who cannot see His glory, those whose eyes are blinded from seeing God's glory in the face of Christ, they cannot manipulate reality by their sheer will to remove Jesus from the Father's throne. They can't do it. They cannot come up with some sort of thought to say, well, I don't want Jesus to be there, and then somehow He magically disappears. That's not reality. He is at the Father's right hand. He's seated there. He's sovereign over all. And one day He will return to fulfill all things. And I have said before, and I'll say it again, God has a list of everyone on the right side of history. The list is called the Lamb's Book of Life. And for those of you who can hear my voice, or later you hear this recording, or you hear my voice through the video recording, someday every knee will bow. As it's said, it's better to do it now where you will be welcomed as a son or daughter and you will reign with this exalted Christ. But if you do not, eventually you will be made to bow the knee. And you will grit through your teeth that He is Lord. But you will say it. I would plead with you to come to Christ today. As 2 Corinthians says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Do not wait another day. Do not wait another hour. Do not wait five minutes from now. Do it now. Confess your sin to Him. Plead for Him to forgive you. Trust in Him. As it said, trust in all that He is, as one gospel preacher puts it. And He will forgive you. And He will welcome you. Do not hesitate. As our brother reminded us, our life is a vapor, amen? It is the height of foolishness to put that off. So not only does the ascension display the exaltation of Christ, but fourth, the ascension points to our future with Christ. And this is Acts 1, verses 10-12. through 12. But while they were gazing into heaven as He went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee... Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. Notice that God redirects the apostles' attention through angels. Notice that, right? The apostles, perhaps dumbstruck by what they were seeing, and who wouldn't be, were, and perhaps were hoping to like someone who's looking at their loved one out the window and as they're departing, or as their loved one is departing, they want to look at them until they can't see Him anymore. Maybe they're keeping their eyes on Jesus until they can't see Him anymore. And they're staring into heaven watching Him leave. 
And unbeknownst to them, a group of 11 turns into a group of 13. As two men in white robes stand by them. Now we know from the scriptures that when a man dressed in white appears, it's not someone who purchased a new gleaming white robe which they want to show off to a captive audience. No, when men dressed in white appear, it's usually, and there are some exceptions, Jesus at the Transfiguration and the saints in Revelation, but outside of that, when a man dressed in white appears, we know it's an angel. We know who they are, but why are they here? They're here to address the apostles, here addressed as men of Galilee. You see that in the text. Bible scholars observe that all the apostles, except for one, that was Judas, all of them were from Galilee. So that's who we're talking about here. And what do they say to the apostles? Why do you stand looking into heaven? This is interesting, as the angel in Matthew and Mark is much more gentle with the women at the tomb. And the angel in those passages explained Jesus has been risen from the dead. And now the angels in John 20 are a little bit more to the point with Mary, but they're still kind, I think. However, in Luke 24, the angels, when they're explaining that Jesus has been risen from the dead, they say this to the women, Why do you seek the living among the dead? This seems to be very much in the same spirit here. The angels are asking the apostles why they're looking into heaven. Probably with bewilderment, because they shouldn't be. I agree with Bible commenter Daryl Bach, who says that this is a, quote, mild rebuke. The disciples should recall what the angels are about to reveal and the implications of it. Here's what they're about to reveal. That Jesus' return will be in the air and to the same place. So how do the angels redirect the apostles' attention and bring them back to the task at hand? Well, they remind them of the great prophecy of the Messiah's return. Jesus is not going to remain in heaven forever. But he will return and fulfill every word that God has spoken. This morning in Sunday school, I was referencing a theologian, Michael Vlach, who talks about Jesus being the means of fulfillment in another context. And it's so true. Jesus makes sure, as he says, that every word of God will be fulfilled. And this is true here. This is true here. I I don't remember if if, uh, a theologian who I greatly admire brought this to my attention, or I discovered this. But if you notice that I think there's a prophecy that the angels are looking specifically at, and that's in the book of Zechariah, chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. And I'll read it. If you want to turn there, you can, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to go ahead and start reading it. And Zechariah 14, verses 1-5 through 5 says this, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as He fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, from the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all His holy ones with Him. 
This is one of those many Day of the Lord texts in the Bible. Zechariah showing here that all the nations are gathered together against Jerusalem to battle and to destroy her. And the city and its inhabitants are greatly assaulted. However, the Lord comes to her rescue and He will fight the nations He has gathered there for battle. Notice in verse 5 that with all of His holy ones He will come, but notice where He will stand. On the Mount of Olives itself. His standing on the Mount will cause it to split into two. It's surely significant in Luke that he mentions in Luke 24.50 the location where he leads the disciples, which Bible commenters say is Bethany, and that's where the Mount of Olives is. And it's not circumstantial that Luke notes from where Jesus departs and where the disciples return from. It's the Mount of Olives. He makes this point because of its prophetic significance. And I believe that Jesus... I believe the angels mention Jesus' return not only to encourage their hearts to say, Jesus is going to return to the exact same place you saw him leave. He's calling their attention to where they were standing and to this great prophecy. Jesus will return in the same way which he left, the exalted King of Kings, into the same place, the Mount of Olives. But there's not only that, but there's more. Notice the pattern. Caught up in the air. Not only will Jesus return in the same manner in which He left, but the ascension establishes a pattern on how the church will meet Him. It's been rightly said about the church and believers that Christ sets the pattern for what will happen to them. Right? Christ suffered first and then there's glory. We suffer first and then there's glory. This is a pattern repeatedly pointed out in Scripture. And it's the same with the ascension. Theologian Louis Burkhoff remarked this about the ascension. He said this, It was also exemplary that in that it was prophetic of the ascension of all believers who already sat with Christ in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2.6, and are destined to be with Him forever, John 17.24. The point is is that this ascension is prophetic. Because as Jesus ascended, we will also ascend. And this is very clearly laid out in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18, which says this, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet, the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Brothers and sisters, Christ will descend from where He resides, from heaven itself, with a thunderous, commanding, trumpeting voice which will call forth His church, both the dead and the living. They will, like He Himself did, ascend in the air. And they will send to meet Him. The dead in Christ will be reunited with their now transformed bodies. And we who are alive will be transformed instantly and put on incorruption. And we will be forever with the Lord. So what's the application? Well, Paul gives it to comfort one another with these words. Amen? We're to be comforted by the fact that death is not the end that Jesus will return 
and that the dead who have gone before us, they're not going to miss out. Right? That's pointed out. If They're not going to miss out. They will cross over with Jesus and they will join Him. And they will watch the shout. And they will watch as their bodies erupt from their graves and are transformed and are joined with them forever. And those who are alive, they will get to be caught up and meet the Lord in the air. We're to comfort one another with these words. The ascension shows us that it points to not only what has happened before, but what is future as well. And then finally, the ascension compels our worship of Christ. Notice in Luke 24, 52 and 53, they worship and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Notice their first response, worshiping Christ. The text says, and they worshiped him. It seems that the angel's reminder caused the apostles to remember the scriptures, see their fulfillment in the ascension, and see how they were still to be fulfilled. And as a result, they worship Jesus as their triumphant king. Second, what's their second response? Obeying the Lord with great joy. You say obeying, where do you, where do you get that from? It says The text says they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Well, Jesus instructed the apostles earlier to stay in Jerusalem. You read the text, you see that. Luke 24:49 says, until they're supposed to stay into Jerusalem until they are clothed with power from on high. That is with the Holy Spirit. So instead of returning home, remember, these are men from Galilee, right? It'd be nice for them to go home finally. But that's not what they do. In obedient anticipation of what's to come, they return to Jerusalem. They have seen what the Lord has done and their faith is strengthened. They're empowered to obey their Lord's instruction and they walk with that power all the way back to Jerusalem. So it should be with us, amen, when we see the glory of our Christ in His exaltation and where He is and the power and how everything is put under His feet and in His dominion, that should motivate our joyful obedience, amen? And then third and finally, they are continually blessing God. Look at verse 53. And they're continually in the temple blessing God. They not only return to Jerusalem, but they also return to the temple where their response to Jesus' magnificent ascension and the angel's message was one of continual blessing of God. What are they blessing God for? Possibly the exaltation of their Messiah. I read one verse. Three verses. Acts 2, 33-35. In Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he says this, "...being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, here's a question we should be asking ourselves. If Jesus left the apostles' sight at the ascension, then how did Peter know that Jesus was exalted at the Father's right hand? Because he knew the Scriptures. And undoubtedly, the angel's reminder of the Messiah's return caused him to recall the Scriptures that he had learned. And so he realized he didn't need to see what happened to know what had happened. 
that the Father fulfilled His promise to say to the Son, sit at my right hand. And Peter and the apostles realized what had occurred in their significance and they respond appropriately with pouring out blessings upon God for what He had done. And the apostles and those in their company continually to continually dwell on the ascension and its significance as it and its implications appear in their writings. You ought to look in the New Testament and see again and again how much the ascension shows up and how they cannot keep themselves from praising the Lord and continually rejoicing in Christ's victory in the ascension. So reading about the ascension should compel our hearts to worship the exalted Lord and Savior. We should see how He's fulfilled Scripture and how He's currently on His Father's throne. And we should allow His Lordship to extend to all of our lives. It should stir our hearts to worship, to joyful obedience, and to the continual blessing of God. And that's what we've seen today. We've seen several glorious aspects of the ascension. We've seen that it focuses our priorities for Christ. That it reminds us of our blessing in Christ. That is the peace. We have noticed that the ascension displays the exaltation of Christ. We have seen that it reminds us of our future in Christ. And then finally, we've seen how it compels our worship of Christ. Let us not look into the mirror of God's Word. See the glory of the Lord in the ascension and walk away. Let's not do that. Let's not forget how glorious His exaltation looks and what we should do in light of it. But instead, let's gaze intently into the mirror of God's Word, see our Savior in His exalted state, see ourselves as worshipful, empowered disciples, and spread this reality-fixing truth of His ascension to the world. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this Word. I pray now that You would implant it deep into our hearts now. We thank You for this Word and we pray that as we close, that You would uh, help us to carry it with us throughout the week. Let us never cease to have high thoughts of You and the Son. In Jesus' name, Amen.